This episode was originally recorded in mid-2023. You are listening to Pharmacy IT and Me, your informatics pharmacist podcast. Hey everyone, this is Tony Dow and welcome to another episode of the Pharmacy IT and Me podcast. Today, we have our special guest, Dr. Smith Patel, returning to the podcast from a couple years ago uh, to talk about, you know, what he's doing in the digital medicine and digital therapeutic space. Uh, thank you so much for returning to the podcast. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you. It's Monday and uh, Tony, it's good to be back. Um, yeah, yeah. Welcome back. And, um, you know, just for the listeners to, um, some of the listeners, you know, they may not have heard you the first time when you were a student on this podcast. But, um, you know, just to give a brief little overview about your career path, can you kind of like go go over about like, you know, where you went to school and then what you're doing right now? Absolutely. Happy to. Um, as, as you mentioned, Smith Patel, I am based out here in Columbus, Ohio. That's where I went to pharmacy school at the Ohio State University. Um, graduated in 2021 of summer between the pandemic, which is quite strange. And I think that was the new impetus of being virtual, being digital, and ever since have been at DIME or Digital Medicine Society. We are a global nonprofit dedicated in advancing effective, ethical, equitable, and safe use of digital technologies to advance healthcare. And we do so by convening multiple stakeholders um, from ethicists, uh, venture capitalists, payers, regulators, health systems, life science innovators, um, farmer companies, all together to build standardized common frameworks that help integrate technologies and clinical research in care settings. Awesome. Yeah, I, I, it's so crazy to see, like, you know, when you were a student, I knew this was like kind of like what you were interested in. And kind of seeing that slowly go through the whole process of like you graduating and then eventually working at, you know, at Dime. And it's, um, it's really cool to kind of see everything that you've been doing. And I think you've also been uh, with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. Is that like something similar or is that a different entity? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, I sit on the advisory board for Digital Therapeutic Alliance and Digital Therapeutic Alliance or DTA is a sister organization. So we are a global nonprofit um, and DTA is a trade association. They are focusing specifically on digital therapeutic solutions, um, which are evidence-based software solutions um, dedicated in prevention, management, treatment of disease or disorder that has some kind of real-world outcomes, versus we focus a little bit on the broader scale of the field of digital medicine, which encompasses digital therapeutics, but we also look a little bit broader into connected sensor technologies, biomets, which is the biometric uh, technology, AI, ML algorithms, more from broader sense that affects uh, research and development, regulations, payment and innovation, health system deployment, etc. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to go over all those questions about like, you know, your, your initial career path, because we already went through that. But for the listeners, if you want to know more about like um, Dr. Patel's kind of like journey during his student years, it is in our episode 108. Um, which I'm looking back right now. I can't believe that was back in 2019. <laughs> That's been such a long time ago. Um, but um, it's so cool to see where you are now. And, you know, like one of the things that I think there's still a lot of challenges of like people understanding digital medicine, digital health is actually just a definition. Um, so so what is exactly digital therapeutics versus digital medicine? <laughs> I love that. This is one of the primordial questions. And I think it's 
it's a little complicated. You know, it's not like the the drug world or the, or the IV world of pharmacy. It's a new term, you know, the digitization of healthcare. We have seen so many different products and applications all the way starting from, you know, an EMR like Epic or Cerner that a pharmacy student or pharmacist be in their hospitals to um, consumer devices that they use in home, like Alexa, smart home uh, products to even wearable sensors that are consumer-based, like the Fitbits and Apple Watches to AI ML algorithms that are being used in, say, breast cancer diagnosis um, and reading charts uh, for radiology to digital therapeutics. Like, there are a lot of products. So um, going back to the question, Tony, I think it's important to classify um, and industry understands around where those demarcations are. So let me let me um, break it down into three, digital health, digital medicine, and then digital therapeutics. So if you think about digital health, the largest, biggest bubble, it encompasses every digital technologies that are used for management of health and wellness of an individual or consumer. You know, it includes anything from consumer products. When I say consumer product, it means that they don't make any medical claim of, say, this is treating or this is managing, but rather um, products like, say, fitness app that you can download on um, your Google Store, Apple Store, or it also includes the EMRs, uh, electronic medical records, or health information technologies. Those are the ones that are there in place for helping manage the health of individual. However, they don't have to go through regulatory um clearance or grant process, and they don't have to be uh, reimbursed by the payers and they don't have real world outcome. But when we talk about digital medicine, um, you know, these digital medicine products are products that are used, um, that has some kind of measurement uh, technologies that helps manage individuals' health. And, you know, let me give you an example. If, um, if a wearable sensor or connected sensor technology is being used to measure activity, um, or number of walking steps a person is taking using an accelerometer, um, that is a valuable information that could be used in research for Parkinson's to understand how a patient of Parkinson's or a wearable sensor that helps uh, measure sleep frequency or uninterruptedness of the sleep or physical activity of an individual or voice biomarkers. All of those products are, falls under the category of digital medicine, you know, digital biomarkers, um, digital endpoints, digital drug development tools. Those are the products that essentially have some kind of regulatory implications to it. However, they don't have the real world um, outcomes that are needed to prove as a digital medicine. And last but not the least, digital therapeutics, the smallest bubble out of the whole, all three um, are software-based, evidence-based uh, applications that are used to prevent, manage, treat, cure a disease or a disorder that makes medical claim of doing that for an individual's health or disease or disorder. You know, um, as a digital therapeutics, there are implications, regulatory implications um, for ones that are prescribed by a doctor or authorized by a doctor um, to have either a uh, as a class one or class two medical device to have a 510k clearance or a DNAVO clearance. So they, there are some regulatory implications for it. And you also want to make sure if there's a medical claim that is being made, say, for example, um, Achille Interactive's um, first FDA-cleared video game software-based application called Endeavor Rx that is used for um, management of ADHD in kids age 8 to 12 
who uses this video game for a specific period of time. This is a medical claim that the software is making that it has on those kids, 8 to 12. So we need to understand that, yes, there are some clinical testing that is being done, and Achilles has done over 70 years of clinical, uh, collected clinical data, but they also have shown real-world outcomes that this is not just applicable in the clinical trial setting, but it's also working in the real-world setting, where it's improving ADHD for those kids. So those are essentially the differences when it comes to digital health medicine and therapeutics. And before I end there, um, one important point to note is, you know, these are not clear demarkable lines. Uh, these, say, for example, a digital health product, if it builds a good evidence and it starts, uh, or a consumer product that uh, now is being used in a clinical trial setting or research purpose and has some kind of measurements and management uh, for that tool, in an individual can become a digital medicine product. And if they show with right regulatory um, pathways and um, had claims of, you know, further uh, more specific and shows real world outcomes, it can become digital therapeutic. So there's a transient nature of these products going in, but those are essentially larger term categorization of how Dime, BTA, and a few other organizations in a collaborative way have done to harmonize our understanding on what these various terms are, what it means, and how it impacts the individual's lives. That was a really great explanation. It's funny because like you kind of read my mind on that last part, because as you were describing it, I was going to ask you about like, you know, whether something can start off as just a simple digital health product and eventually make its way to become medicine and then therapeutics, uh, which you, you answered nicely at that. And I mean, that was my question. Did you have anything else to add or was that kind of already answered? Yeah, Tony, this is a great question. And I think we see a lot of products that um, from the innovator side and from industry side, having similar thoughts and similar questions where, let me give you an example, you know, Apple Watch, a consumer product, which has wellness claims that are non-regulated. However, um, over the last couple of years, now there is an ECG function, if you see the Apple Watch. Those ECG functions are 510K FDA cleared because they, they made a specific claim. So they went from a consumer product uh, because it was a consumer data to now it becomes a health data because of the medical claims that they have where they said that it is intended for X, Y, and Z. When they make such kind of claims, they transition from a digital health product to a more uh, complicated measurement uh, product. So now a consumer data becomes a health data. And I think the transition from out of that digital health space and now going into further digital medicine and therapeutic space. Again, it is not as black and white. I would say it is fit for purpose based on a product, based on the intended use, based on the environment of use where they're using it, and based on the outputs that one uh, collects as a result of it for um, individuals if they are in the research setting or for patients if they are in the So like I have a very specific app I want to ask about. I don't, I don't know if you know. Um, if you don't know, it's it's fine. But have you heard of the app called Noom? I think so. I may have. Is that the one with the orange background as a brand? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's the one. So it's really interesting when, I, you know, for my work, we have that as um one of our benefits of, you know, working where I work and they give us subscription to that. And I'm always wondering and thinking about like what Noom or where Noom sits on this. And for those of you who don't know, Noom is an app where it it has um lessons that teach the the user uh, about like food and like good foods, bad foods, and kind of using a, a type of cognitive behavioral therapy through the app, through support groups and everything to kind of 
change the way you think about food so you have a more manageable uh, weight through the way that you eat. Like it's changing how you think about how you eat. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm always thinking like, hmm, is this like, is it a digital help? I mean, I guess at a basic form it is because it's an app that kind of improves your health. But then it gets to that point where is it digital medicine, digital therapeutics, because they are using cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm not really 100% sure about the outcomes that um, come from this. Um, I mean, like, like, you know, study outcomes. I don't know if there are any. Um, but like, do you have any thoughts about that? Or like, what can what questions need to be asked in order to like know where Noom sits on the on these definitions? Really great question, uh, Tony. And I may have not seen very much into their research portfolio around the Noom's product. However, I can I can give you a big picture over beyond you know how you can determine some of these things. So, um, as you mentioned, and the little that I know about Noom, I think they are a consumer-led digital health company because they are. Their entire focus is uh, using behavioral science that combines the psychology, technology, and then human coaching um, to help people. Uh, I wouldn't say just patients, but people with chronic and non-chronic conditions, be it you know stress and anxiety, be it hypertension, be it diabetes. Um, essentially, the question that needs to come out of is, is their product making claims that they are treating or managing a specific disease or disorder? Versus is it more around um, they being a wellness product that still provides that human coaching, which is important, you know, as you said, like eating, uh, sleeping, those are physiological parameters and those are behavioral patterns that impacts the health, but does it impact the disease or disorder is where the demarcation comes in. If they make a medical claim where they say, um, you know, for diabetes, if they are um, using the cognitive behavioral therapy of a noon, um, if they change agency levels or blood sugar levels, improvement happen for X to Y period, um, and A to Z is the difference of agency, then that is a medical claim. And that is the time when it moves out of the digital health arena or the area to a more digital medicine. Um, and again, it could be demarcated based on what they're claiming to do and who are the target users? You know, are they intended for a specific patient population versus the just general population that is improving larger scale health and wellness? I see. I see. Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing that. It, it does give me a little bit better understanding of that. And, you know, it, it's because these these apps out there, they're just, it's just so vague. Like it's vague because I don't really know at what point, you know, it becomes digital medicine. And you explained that pretty clearly right now about like that demarcation. So the next thing I wanted to ask about too is like, you know, there's always like with new technology, new healthcare, things like that, there's always challenges to like, you know, at what point is this good enough to be recognized by payers? How have you kind of seen that as a challenge? And I guess like what is the organization or what you're doing for the organization? Like what are you guys doing about that in terms of like trying to get them um, acknowledged and then paid for? Tony, that's a really great question. I think what you um, alluded to is a question that this field is trying to solve and figure it out. You know, we know that um, as we as we see the evolution of the timeline for a lot of these digital products, um, we saw one of the first digital therapeutic being cleared um, by FDA, the reset for substance use disorder by pair therapeutics was one of the watershed moments in terms of when the uh, 
the regulatory clearance and regulatory acceptance of a lot of digital health products started. And ever since over the last five years, almost five years, we have seen that many, many different organizations and companies have either taken a regulatory approach or even direct-to-consumer approach. And some of them have had the success of um, reimbursement. And going back to the question that, you know, why is it so hard? I think the narrative or the question should be, what can we do to harmonize our approaches um, so that we can have better reimbursement and market access to a lot of these products? And there are many, many factors that goes underneath. So let me walk you through some of them. You know, one of the first things is that this field is very new. Um, you know, people like us who have been in the field, it feels that we because we are living and breathing it in every single day, it feels that, oh, it has taken so long and we have not seen wide-scale reimbursement. However, if we think about biosimilars and pharmacogenomics, it takes a field almost 10 years to mature uh, from research and development, an idea and a concept to something that goes through multiple different stakeholders. The other part is, you know, evidence underneath a lot of these digital tools, you know, um, once the... I'm, I'm using 2018 and 2019 timeframe to give people um, an idea around we went into a pandemic right after the boom of um, various kinds of digital products that were being starting to use specifically software-based medical devices. And over the period of um, pandemic, we have seen rapid, vibrant growth of various companies, products, portfolios, um, investments that was swelling to facilitate and to foster the growth of this entire field. However, with the growth, we also saw there were some of the gaps when it comes to um, evidence. You know, one of the things that comes down to an evidence for a digital health product is it's a little different from the drug world. The device world and the cross-traditional worlds were a little different. Today, we are talking about software-based devices um, versus other devices like pacemakers or implantables that are inside the body. Software-based, by definition and by technology type, is a little different. So uh, thinking about even pair colleagues, how they reimburse for it, you know, what is the right pricing structure for it um, is another question. But before we jump into a little bit more causes and or some of the things that will that it will take to get those reimbursements, it's important to highlight the fact that even with various digital health products that have gone through it, um, we see on the clinical trial setting that it has been tested in clinical trial setting from um, N or number of patients from 50 to 500 based on product, based on companies. Um, one of the challenges was a lot of clinical trials that were being done for these digital health products showed great safety and effectiveness data in the trial setting. However, when it was translated in the real world setting with wider population, that evidence was good. It was not great yet. You know, they, they were still this data that has been collected. And as a field, we are a little bit new to it in terms of what that data is being collected from the real world setting. And the second important point to that is regulators or these device companies, they think about product as an individual product, you know, how it impacts a single patient. So um, a digital therapeutic that helps manage or treat a disease or disorder in that one patient out of a patient group, it's regulated, that one product is regulated. When we think about payer colleagues and reimbursement, we have to think about the concept of payers are not, not giving like, hey, yeah, you, oh, you, yeah, you get reimbursement, the other person, you don't. Um, they have to think about a whole population level 
uh, reimbursement um, when they accept something to be put out on a formulary or when they accept a product um, that is going to be reimbursed um, through their formulary program and health plans. And then the third part of it is because of the nascent field, you know, there are still questions around how payers reimburse for it or how do they even evaluate the evidence or the clinical value underneath that digital health application? You know, how do they compare and contrast? Do they compare it with a drug? For example, um, let's take Reset O, which is used for opioid disorder by pair therapeutic. Um, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy that individuals can use whenever um, prescribed um, as per the prescription label. Do they compare to an actual drug that is being used to treat opioids? Are they comparing to a combination where there's a screening that's being done from a digital product and then a drug um, compared to the pair's digital therapeutics? Or it's a mix of all. How do we create that standardized uh, baseline of comparative Comparative evaluation is something this field is still building. Um, and I think it takes time and we have to have that empathy of understanding that it takes time. And to um, share that Dime has over the last one and a half years working on a framework for evaluation of it, where we have looked into over um, 78 different frameworks and tools and resources in terms of how individuals evaluate clinical value. And we'll be sharing that framework in the next two to three months um, on what payers, health systems, PBMs can use to essentially evaluate the evidence underneath it and make better reimbursement decisions um, that comes out of it. Awesome. Wow. Uh, so that when that comes out, like, is that just there as like a resource or is there like, I guess like my my concern about that is, you know, yeah, payers will, will um, have this resource for them to understand how they reimburse. But how does it get enforced? Is there a way to enforce that they would base their pay off this kind of thing? Or is that just like, like, that's just how it works? Or they just have to, you kind of have to trust that they use the resource, you know? Great question. And I think, you know, there are two steps to uh, implementing any kind of frameworks or policies. You know, first, they need to know what, what the heck they are actually evaluating and what need this framework um, is going to assess. And it has multiple different pages and multiple different recommendations and checklists. Um, that will come out with it is actually giving them in terms of how to do it. The step two is peer colleagues to put out policies um, that marry that framework to essentially start reimbursing for it. You know, we as organization, we can't tell like, oh, this is a great product. You should, um, we are a global nonprofit. What we try to do is we try to show individuals what good looks like. And one of the beauty about the framework that it's coming out is, um, one of the co-authors who has led the, this initiative is from one of the largest uh, um, pair in the United States. And they are the ones who are actively using this internally um, that, that is building upon the work internally. So it's something that it's more of show, don't tell. So we are going to show individuals in terms of this large pair organizations that what they are doing and what is the right North Star when it comes to evaluation of it looks like. Um, and that's how the need will be solved. Again, at the end of the day, the decision is from the payer organizations. But what we have done is narrowed the gap in terms of how to do it, what to do it, what to look at, um, and when is the right time to reimburse for it. If we can solve those and make it easy for our payer colleagues, I think we are building a path for 
good, high transparent, high quality evidence-based products to go in the hands of the patients. Because that last thing we want is patients have a digital therapeutic in their hand. A doctor told them and prescribed that this is going to work for you and it doesn't work. That does more harm to the entire ecosystem. So it's advisable that we take an approach, one, that is evidence-based, two, that can be implemented effectively, and three, that works for all patients across the nation. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, like as pharmacists, we're trained to uh, know the medicine, like know know the medications. And, um, you know, in the future, when these kind of things get prescribed or ordered, and then now pharmacy is going to maybe possibly dispense something that is tied to the digital therapeutic side, like how how do you um, see pharmacists learning more about this or like how do we get pharmacists on the on the dispensing side uh, to know and understand what they're dispensing what they're checking for these therapy uh, digital therapeutics does that make sense mm-hmm. it does um that's a really great question you know the best part about it is if it it's a digital therapeutic it may be a software base and they would not have to dispense rather they will have to educate um the patients around how to do it you know it's not a physical pill or a medication that they will be giving, but rather it would be more on the educational side of how do they download it? You know, what are the things that they need? How to move past from screen A to screen B um, and how to do onboarding of that patient for um, the software-based application is something pharmacists I envision um, that they will be doing if, again, the reimbursement is under the pharmacy benefit and if it has counseling components attached to it. But there's a big role that pharmacists can play in terms of educating patients when they have questions around what to do, how to do, when to use it. Similar to how um, in our traditional pharmacy world we do when we dispense an inhaler, we teach them how the technique of the inhaler, we tell them when to use it, we tell them how often and what are implications of not doing it or overdoing it. Those are similar questions, but with a little bit of a twist um, that is more fit for purpose to software-based products um, that pharmacists would be encountering. I see, I see. Yeah, so um, that's that's a good point to make that, you know, it is a little bit more software-based. Um, I'm, I'm kind of just a little bit more like uh, concerned about, you know, not really concerned, but more like thinking about where the software base kind of ties into the meds itself. Like some digital therapeutics may be, you know, medications that have tracking in them that then syncs to an app or something like that, you know? Um, but yeah, you do make a good point. It is, if it's tied to that, pharmacists do have that, um, that, that area where they, they uh, can educate the patient in, in doing that. Absolutely. Um, and I'll make a, a point that, you know, it will come down to, Tony, as you alluded to, if it's a combinational product versus if it's a standalone digital therapeutics. You know, digital therapeutics are not just only software-based. Sometimes they come as a package, as a combinational product, you know, where there is a digital therapeutic, plus there's also a drug that in a combined setting has better health outcomes and therapeutic outcomes uh, for those than solo drug or solo device alone. So I think uh, based on what a product is, again, going back to like intended use, indication of use, environment of setting, type of product, um, there are trickling implications in terms of how a pharmacist will educate patients. And before they even do that, um, it would be roles of a lot of uh, pharmacy education schools, patient bodies to ensure that this is being included as a part of either the curriculums or either the practice settings where people are learning about it so that next time when a patient pulls up their phone and says like, oh, this is an app that my doctor has prescribed, how am I going to use it? 
they are well prepared, well informed, and well educated to educate the um, patient population. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that the uh, curriculum does have to evolve to kind of match up with like you know how the um, the field's evolving. And um, you know, if someone wanted to learn more about you know what Dime is doing, what you're doing, maybe in particular, uh, what's the way best way that they can learn more about Dime or you know maybe reach out to you? Absolutely. Yeah, they can learn at Dime or DigitalMedicineSociety.org on our website. Um, I would also encourage individuals to learn about time and DTA. DTA has resources, a really good product library when it comes to digital therapeutics. Some of the questions that Tony, we discuss about how to differentiate time and DTA uh, collectively have a few resources that individuals can start learning from some of those basic differences and definitions um, and what kind of products falls under that. Um, so digitalmedicinesociety.org is the dimes and then dtxalliance.org or uh, we can share that in um, their post recording. And if they want to reach out, LinkedIn is a good place for um, to reach out to connect with me. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, I'll be putting those into the show notes for anyone who's uh, interested in either learning more or reaching out. Uh, but, you know, to be respectful of your time, thank you so much for returning to the podcast and, you know, sharing what you've been doing since uh, you graduated. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Tony. All right. If you like our show, please share with your friends or you can help us out by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your other favorite podcasting services. You can also check us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And you can also reach out to me at Tony at PharmacyITME.com. If you want to network, you can check out the Pharmacist Select group at PharmacistConnect.com, which is P-H-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T-S-C-O-N-N-E-C-T.com. There's different topic channels, including informatics, and I've met some great colleagues on there. And I look forward to connecting with you as well. Thank you again for listening. And I'll see you on the next episode of Pharmacy. CIT and me. And remember, technology is a tool, patient care is the goal.